0: This is Barbell Buddha, Rediscovered, episode 96. I'm in Austin, Texas, and we're going down the rabbit hole with Mike Bledsoe. What? (laughs) 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 We're here. I'm, I'm doing it live. First, audience, here's what you need to know right out of the gate. I have already recorded episode 97. I did it in Fairy Hill, so we're telling this out of order, but I waited until I was in Austin to do it with the homie. This is episode ninety six we're counting down only four more episodes to go. Wow, can you believe it you're do- you- you're almost done with it. I'm almost done with it. How long have you been doing it? I started the podcast in two thousand and eighteen. I remember when I started i said oh, It took Chris four years to do a hundred episodes. I'm going to be done in two years. Now here we are (laughs) rolling into year five, but I did it and I'm proud that I did it. (laughs) And now I I understand Chris a little bit better because his podcast wasn't the number one thing in his life. It was something that he did for the people. And this is something that I did for the people. And sometimes things take priority. But when I allowed that, when I finally settled into, I'm not going to get this done exactly how I wanted to, it just got way better. I felt less friction. I had a lot more fun and uh, yeah, well, you know, here we are. What can I say? Excellent. You know, there was a moment in 2018 where I decided that I was going to take a risk. I was going to risk it all. I was going to come down here to Austin, Texas to meet the man, Mike Bledsoe. And I was like, Mike, I'm coming to see you, buddy. And he said, okay. And I, I didn't have any money. I was strapped. And so I borrowed a Honda Element to drive down to Austin, Texas. And I parked it just off of 6th Street. And I knew that I was going to sleep in my car because I couldn't. I, I got the Paleo FX tickets, and that was the extent of what was possible. So, <laughs> so what I did was I, I parked just off of 6th Street. And by the time that I got back to my car that night, they had blocked off my exits. So I had to sleep. Off of 6th Street on like a Friday night. It was hot. People were jamming. People were looking inside my car. 6th Street? 6th Street. W- is a... It's just a party. It's a big fucking party.
1: Non-stop. 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 It's wild. Totally. It's wild down there.
0: So I woke I up... Think it's
1: more wild now than it was then, but... Well, geez, I, I, I'm glad... Just it, more people.
0: More people. I mean... Yeah. So I woke up the next day. I moved over to the Palmer Event Center parking lot. I gave myself... Uh, A military grade shower, which is for y'all that don't know, military people don't get to take showers out on the field. They get tell them what you get, Mike. What do you get when you're out on the field? Nothing. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) maybe some baby wipes to wipe that crust off your junk. If
1: you you
0: thought ahead, (laughs) yeah. So (laughs) I did. I had baby wipes. I wiped off, and then I walked inside. And on the way in, I saw a guy named Dave Robinson and a guy named Brian Muka. Randomly, the first people that I saw in the parking lot. I said, "Where are you headed?" They said, "We're headed to meet Mike Bledsoe." I said, "You know shit. I'm headed to meet Mike Bledsoe." And I got <laughs> down here and I said, "If this doesn't happen, I'm never gonna get. It. I'm never gonna have this opportunity again if I don't get Mike on the microphone." And I walked in, and and it became pretty clear that you were slammed, and we didn't do the interview. And you're like, "Yeah, man, just come to California." And I remember thinking. <laughs> the fuck how am i gonna get to california <laughs> i barely got my ass here but we did it and i rolled Come up I, I i pulled out the credit card i bought a ticket to encinitas and that's where we did but we did our first show and you put me on your show yeah and mike put me on the spot so if it wasn't for you mike i don't know where i'd be uh my pleasure it was fun it was really fun that was almost five years ago there's a question that you answered in episode 96 with Chris, or a statement that you made, which was, "I feel like, I feel like I've learned more in the past four years than I have my whole life." That was seven years ago. Yeah, you know where to take it from here. <laughs> that continues to be true. That
1: um, yeah, the that was seven years ago. I've learned more in the last seven years than I did in the first 34. It's interesting, I went and listened to that episode, I, I listened to it, uh, I, I knocked it out yesterday, between yesterday and this morning, and first off, it was hard to listen to, um, sounded like such a pompous asshole, and I also, <laughs> it's like, you don't, you don't. Uh, I, I don't realize how pompous I sound until I go back and listen years later, like, this guy thought he knew what the fuck he was talking about. And he thought thirty four year old Mike thought the same thing about thirty year old Mike. This fucking asshole. He thought he knew what he was talking about. Uh, you know, a blessing and a curse. I. Uh, it's been pointed out by my fiance that I sound confident a lot.
0: <laughs> I've had that problem too. People are like, "Oh, this is for sure gonna happen." Then, based on the way you're saying it. Yeah. Yeah. They were. I've, I've left people righteously disappointed a time or two. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, I, I think, I think, uh,
1: if you're, if you're right enough, you, you, that just keeps happening. It's like, Oh yeah, I think this will happen, but that's, what's necessary for, uh, leaders is you've got to be confident enough and you got, you got to paint a vision of the future that's greater than right now that people can buy into. That's the only thing that really creates progress. Um, yeah. Cause we all just live into a narrative, right? So yeah, listening to it was, uh, was interesting and yeah, I, Looking back between 34 and I'm 41 now is, uh, yeah, I've learned a lot, a lot more. I, I would say um, there's a lot of humility that's been delivered since then. I That was recorded during a time where I was having peak success in a lot of ways.
0: Well, One of the points, one of the things that I aspired to do in this show was to give people a more context of what was going on in Chris's life based on the trajectory of Barbell Shrugged. So y'all recorded the episode December 19th, at least it was released, December 19th, 2015. It was just before Chris's 35th birthday, which I imagine means that it was just before your 35th birthday to some degree. And if I'm not mistaken... This is when no, I'm not mistaken. This is when you guys were already planning to transition the podcast to the new hosts, yeah. Amac, Alex Macklin, Mcg, Mike McElroy, and Kurt Mulliken. They did the podcast at CrossFit Hit and Run, which was my home gym. This is how closely we were, but we didn't quite, we didn't quite intersect then because yeah. the podcast moved to my gym. Yeah, that's how close it was. Yeah, but you guys were pretty much already gone. So this is inbound, this transition, full depth is in swing, but I, and the v- listeners will note, that's not exactly what where the story goes. Do you want to talk about the time in your life, if you're open to it? What was that like leading up to it, knowing that just after this is when the, uh you could say, the shit hit the fan? Is that a fair way to describe what happened?
1: Peak yeah. success
0: to shit hitting the fan?
1: Yeah, I mean, shit, was it, Chris passed, Was it? It was 2017. He passed in 2016. 2016. June. June. Okay. So, yeah, you're right. The, uh, got my dates mixed up. I would say, um, man, yeah, shit started hitting the fan spring of 2016 and just continued until 2018. Yeah. Just like a, a year and a half of ass kicking. So, yeah, I don't know exactly where to
0: start with that. Well, how about this? How about what the hell was it like? Cuz y'all built a team. And any time that you build a team and you start you start with the people that are the closest to you. Hey, I know so and so that can fulfill this role and they won't charge me anything probably, you know, to give me their help. And over time y'all still did started building a business that was profitable enough to bring on other team members, which included your personal friends. We we made a lot of money. Um <laughs> so 2015,
1: 2016, 2015 was, was I, I say that was peak because that was when that was when the most amount of money was coming in. We had a very large team. Uh, looking back on it as just purely from a business owner perspective, I actually overpaid people i it wasn't one of those things where I was looking for cheap labor i um I was in this mentality of hiring people who were passionate and then paying them ten percent or more over industry standard uh to keep them happy uh but what ended up happening is I ended up hiring a lot of passion without a lot of skill mm-hmm. and people were willing to learn things uh but the speed at which we were moving uh was could have been a lot faster had we just hired people with skill sets
0: right because the more people that you hire that you have to teach the more work that the leadership roles create for themselves
1: yeah and i had well i hired a bunch of people that were really good at fitness and me and being like okay learn copywriting and funnel building and like what the fuck And then I I don't want to do this shit. And then I tried to outsource to another company that specialized, you know, there, there's just like a lot of mistakes in there. And there was a lot of, I trusted, I didn't, um, uh, consider that most of what we did was not going to work. I had been very lucky in that a lot of what I, you know, I struggled in business from 2007 to 2013. And I slowly built up the gym business in that period of time. Started Barbell Shrugged. And then when that started making money, basically any anything I did with Barbell Shrugged starting in 2013, everything was successful no matter what. Like yeah. I couldn't miss. Mm-hmm. So from 2013 to 2016, not, like everything worked. Everything was profitable. Money was flowing in. And I just thought it would keep going no matter what.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so it was around the 2016 where I started trying to do things and they, they stopped working, right? I started new projects that, that fell flat. And, uh, I was, I was surrounded by in the entrepreneurial community. I was surrounded by people who were like, yeah, yeah. Eight figure business. I'm like, yeah, I'll I'll run eight figure, nine figure. Like let's go to a hundred million. That was, this was like, Yeah, I want to be, there was a lot of ego in that, in that I was swimming in a community where this, this type of conversation was normalized, but I was also running a company where that was not normalized. Nobody in that company really considered or were able to comprehend as a media fitness media company that we would be able to, most people were like, yeah, we're making a few million dollars a year. That's pretty fucking good. And looking back on it, yeah, I could have kept it a lot simpler and been way more profitable, way, way simpler from like a leadership perspective. Um, I made things very complex. I I planned for a future that was nowhere close to arriving yet. Uh, I was too far forward looking uh, through most of it.
0: Yeah, a little bit out on your a little bit out over your skis. You're leaned in so hard that, and the momentum starts carrying you so hard. It, it's hard to regulate when you're out over your skis that far.
1: Yeah, and I didn't even know
0: it. Yes. <laughs> well, and, and actually, listening to the episode, one thing that I heard you mention was there was a conversation around the mind maze. Do you do you yeah. recall this? Oh, yeah. And you said uh, you were giving people the mind maze meditation thing, and you said, and if you just want to blow up the maze, go to Peru. <laughs> <laughs> So so you'd clearly uh, blown up your mind maze in a in a way by going to Peru at this point. Yeah. But the irony, as I'm hearing it now, is the part of you that you were dismantling was the part of you that needed to keep going up in weight. Yeah. I just need to keep adding weight. But all you did was just shift it to the money side in a way. It was like, oh, I'm just going to make more money. It's I'll, I'll just keep going. The sc- I'll just keep scaling up. And just like in training you start hitting this inflection point where what you do doesn't work to get you where you want to go. And it just sounds like you learned that lesson multiple times back to back.
1: Yeah, that was, that was part of it. I think another part of it is I I noticed this with people, you know, I've been partaking in psychedelics for a decade now and I, um, my, my fiance is involved in that field and I'm, I'm uh, help her on the, I'm, I'm, in charge of business development for her company. And she is in the business of wrangling facilitators uh, to make sure that everyone's doing, doing it the way they're supposed to do. And there's just a lot of people. When I meet someone who's been in the psychedelic game for five, or year, five years or less, and I, which is where I was at seven years ago, there is this, uh, it, it's a sophomore thing. You know, what, you know what sophomore is broken down? The etymology of sophomore is?
0: I, I could play, but please, go for it.
1: Yeah, Sophie uh, means wise, and more basically means moron. And so a sophomore in high school or college is somebody who thinks they know because they were, they already been there for a year. They think they know more than they actually do. Mm. And so they are really prone to mistakes because... They think they got it all figured out. And then usually by the time someone becomes a junior, they go from sophomore to junior, they go, oh, I don't know. And then you become a senior and you go, I actually do know. I've been here, you know, for a while. And so the um, those stages of development in high school or, or college is one year at a time. But in, you know, the development over uh, mastering something, you know, mastery happens in seven to ten years. So it's probably more like two to two and a half year increments. So if you're in your, in the first couple of years, you're like, I know I don't know shit mm. about my mind and using psychedelics to do that. Two and a half years later, you're the sophomore, the wise moron, which is what I was in that show. And then, uh, you know, now I've been in it for a decade and I go, people, people who have way less experience than myself will come around and start talking. I'm like, eh. Uh, you probably shouldn't be serving that medicine, uh, and uh, yeah, you might want to check yourself before you you uh, wreck yourself <laughs> or somebody else. Yes, well, uh, to that point, but here is but here is but here's the fortunate thing is I wasn't serving anything, but I was in this place of thinking I knew more than I thought I did, just because I had done more work on in that area than most people had. But I was in a dismantled phase. I I wasn't. I wasn't restructuring anything.
0: One of my biggest uh, learning curves in the time that we've known each other is mistaking knowledge for experience. Mm -hmm. I put a tremendous amount of value on what I knew, and I assumed that because I knew it, I could do it. Right. And that's a, that's a sophomore, that's a, that's a wise, moronic thing to think is that I, I, it's like, oh yeah, I know how the school works, you know, so I can just talk about it like I know how this process is going to go towards the end. I saw, I noticed this in another area, the sophomoric. You said it was psychedelics. In the relationship side of things, there were some podcasts that began popularizing some concepts. And I understood the intent, which was sharing their experience. All they likely aspired to do was just share their experience, deconstruct it for people, and connect with the audience. But they were sharing some really. Uh, they were sharing some practices that uh, were m- maybe a really far advanced without having the experience with the practices before they started telling people about it. I won't mention any names, but there was a huge uh, popularity, popularization of polyamory on the airwaves, Mm -hmm. not just culturally, but like on the airwaves. And then all of a sudden there's a whole slew of people that are experimenting with polyamory without having done any inner work, any personal connection. They just heard about this popular thing and it sounds really fun to fuck a bunch of people, you know, like, (laughs) oh, that sounds awesome. You're telling me I can get some and be in a relationship? That sounds amazing, right? And then the process continues, the timeline continues, and the those that were popularizing it, uh, those relationships disintegrated. Now, here's why I say that. I was blessed. I say blessed, I don't know. I was experienced in it secondhand because I come from a second generation of family members that were part of the origin of the culture that was being talked about on the shows. Mm-hmm. One of my aunts used to manage a commune in Northern California called Bonnie Dune. <laughs>
1: I know Bonnie Dune very well. There you go.
0: I love Bonnie Dune. Bonnie Dune's great, and so I spent a lot of my childhood in the Northern California in uh, uh, Santa Cruz, Capitola area, and I spent a lot of time at Bonnie Dune.
1: Really, I've probably been up there for three or four months total.
0: I mean, I've, I might, I may out outdo you on that, but all of this happened before age twelve. Well, wow. so I have, I come from the second generation, and just speaking frankly you know, uh, it was messy. Yeah, Uh, it was messy, especially for the kids. And a lot of times the adults, like they, they have the rational brain to be able to say, oh, I'm making a conscious choice. And this is, you know, in, in choice, all of this, and it's clean, quote unquote, as an energy, but they weren't able to see far enough. It was a sophomoric rise to be like, oh, this will just be fine for all of our kids. And, um, newsflash, it wasn't not to say that monogamy works out for every kid either. Clearly, clearly, there's lots of issues that you know mon- monogamy is messy as well. I'm just saying that it seemed like a greener pasture to the people it was being presented to, and now I'm like, it's clicking. Like, oh right, it was a sophomore thing. They had spent their freshman year learning about it, so by the time they were a sophomore, they're like, oh yeah, let's just tell all the freshmen how this works. Exactly. Yeah. And meanwhile, the se- seniors are single, you know, yeah. or or in a or now they got their <laughs> sweetheart and they're taking her to prom you know, and yeah. they want to get married. So, yeah. yeah, the that that totally makes sense. And, I mean, but at the same time, you know, all of you guys, like, you only know what you know when you know it. So uh when Chris was going through his whole process, he seemed to be, and you both seemed to be, pulling away from the top five deadlifts, you know, deadlift tips to help you get stronger, or the top three to eight you know, things. And I imagine, I'll let you speak on this. You met a lot of people in the fitness industry that you could just sense from their energy that like, it just really wasn't your people, but you got a show and you got airwaves to fill and you got, uh, maybe y'all didn't really take any sponsors, but you got, you got stuff to sell and you got people to pay. So, um, when did you really firmly decide or what was the process like for you transitioning where you just knew you were moving away from it, but there was still the infrastructure to take care of.
1: Um, I knew that I wanted to step, I would say the end of 2015, there was, there was this, um, desire to do something different. I didn't quite know what it was. Uh, and there, yeah, I'm not, it's hard for me to put like, just a, a point in time on that because there was like a lot of little things that happened along the way. Could you ask the, the question different or
0: sure. again? You guys start making the changes behind the scenes, but you haven't announced it. Mm-hmm. You knew why you were making the changes, which is like, hey, we need to do something different and we can raise up these other guys and we can let them have the uh, have the questions. Yeah,
1: I, I I was less interested in talking about deadlifts and pull-ups and all that And I knew that the brand expected that, the people expected that of the brand. We had really capable coaches that had been coaching our clients for a couple of years that were still very excited to talk about that. Um, And I was uh, more curious about approaching a more holistic conversation, something where I could dive into other topics And where I could discuss things like psychedelics, polyamory, uh, just spirit, you know, spirituality in general, um, emotional well-being, these things that if you were to talk to the CrossFit market about it, they would, you know, get a funny look on their face. They wouldn't want to listen to it. And uh, and in fact, before I decided to put these guys on the show, I was trying to just steer the show and the things that i was interested in because uh that had worked in the past the reason barbell short worked is cuz i was really interested in the subject matter and i wanted to keep steering it and then the rest of the team just wasn't on board with like just even mixing in some conversations here and there that was more not even i didn't even want to talk about anything sexuality it was just like hey let's just talk to somebody who's going to be more on the men the mentality side or the emotional development side. I mean, bringing Mark England on was was a was a bit of an ask. I mean, coming in to talk about language on the fitness show, which now seems really, it's been very normalized. Like Mark goes on fitness shows all the time to talk about this and people are ready to accept it. And so, yeah, I, there were, there was, um, I think Chris was much more, on board with wanting to develop different conversations and then the rest of the team was like, didn't really know what to do with it. And, um, some people, uh, what I, what I got from it were really un- they didn't want to dive into that topic because they wouldn't really know how to contribute to the conversation either. Uh, they weren't. And the reason is because they just weren't interested If you're not interested in that topic, then you're not going to help produce a show that's doing that topic. It's not going to make sense to you. So I I basically had to come to terms with I'm not going to be able to steer this brand in the direction that is aligned with my own interests. I'm getting bored with this. Okay, Next next, next best option is put other people in place who are passionate about this and... Uh, and that didn't. It wasn't really well received. I think part of the mistake we made was just how we, instead of posting an episode, we kind of like, we thought it would be. It was fun, and I think other people felt like it was a fuck you. Of uh, I think we posted a show that was like, oh, this is the next episode. And it was nothing. Do you remember that?
0: I have a vague memory of this. Yes.
1: Yeah. And it was like, oh, there's new shit coming. And there was this pause. It was weeks and weeks. And, you know, we, one mm. of the, this is like a, a typical marketing no-no. if we broke a rule, which is you're all, you stay consistent no matter what. Like every Wednesday we drop the show. I mean, I got a coffee mug still in my, my cabinet that says, is it Wednesday yet? Barbell shrugged. And we broke the rule. And I mean, I was always about breaking some type of rule. Uh, I, I broke too many and. You know, one at a time is my, my my rule about breaking rules, which sometimes gets broken in itself. But <laughs> <laughs> we're getting to the rabbit hole, everybody. Here we go. This is it. The meta. <laughs> uh, so uh the uh yeah, so it wasn't well received. And had it been me, Doug, and Chris that came back after that break, I think it would have been fine. And then for everyone to be like we were hyping up, and then and then it was like total strangers. It totally makes sense to me now why it, it that wouldn't land. And and then it, it, we put undue stress on these guys. Like, oh, you got to live up to, you know, barbell shrug, you know, take it on. And I at the time felt like I was giving these guys a really great opportunity, which mm. which is true. Um, but I didn't it, it wasn't the right move. Uh, they just it, it, it's too it was too big of a shift too quickly. And, um, uh, I was really happy just wanting to sit back and run the business and then run the Bledsoe show, which is what I was doing. Um, but also not putting any effort. I've never put effort into the Bledsoe show in, in regard to growing it, the audience. Like Barbell Shrugged, there was a focused intention to grow the audience. The Bloodso show, they started off as a, um. As a way of me to like kind of let off some creative steam, mm-hmm. it didn't matter to me how many people were listening, and I think because that's the way it started, it it never really got to a point where I wanted. It, it was directionless. It, it really was just the, the the let the
0: steam off type of thing. Well, and some of those early guests that you had impacted me personally as much as any content that y'all put out and Barbell Shrugged the entire time. Yeah. Looking back at Barbell Shrugged, there are a couple of episodes that really stuck out to me, and there's a couple of like stints that really stuck out to me. There was a big NorCal stint that stuck out to me where you interviewed Kalipa, you interviewed Diane Fu, and you interviewed Kelly Sturette and and a handful of others all back to back. But the Diane Fu episode was the first time that y'all had on, that I can recall, a weightlifting coach that was very artistically minded and talked about it in those terms, which was very foreign to the audience because it was like, no, 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 tell me how to set up my eight-week training block. And Diane really? was like, uh, yeah, when I coach people, sometimes I just say nothing for weeks on end. And you're like, well, that's not what I was expecting, <laughs> you know? And y'all were able to... that, But that, to me, was exciting because I like things that are new. Um, Julian Pinot, when that hit, that just that felt like a barn burner. It was like, okay, just not that we're going to go back and cancel every Barbell Shrugged episode, but it was just like everything else was now, for me, looked through the lens of this new perspective that I had that Julian brought to the show. And then the next was when uh, I discovered Chris's show personally. And it was after he had passed away. And then you, that you had your own Bledsoe show. And I started reeling back. And uh, I'm thinking about maybe it was like Marcy Locke episode. I was like, what the fuck is this bitch talking about? <laughs> time jumping fucking energy centers around the world, you know, and then there was Guy Ferdman and then there was an the episode with Marcy Locke and Guy Ferdman that was like deconstructing the world in 5d or whatever. And it was just like, Whoa. Yeah. And that to me had a huge shift, but I could understand again, this is, given what I just told you about Bonnie Dune, you could understand my interests. I've, I've been pre-exposed to some of these ideas. So to me, it was exciting to hear somebody in fitness well, talking lo- about those things. A lot of people love those shows.
1: I have a lot of people reach out and say the Marcy Locke show was their favorite. And I, it's so funny as I went down that road a bit and I watched some, there's some other people out there that get very into the, they, they run spiritual podcasts. And I I have a hard time highlighting someone who I don't understand. Like they start using words and I go, I don't, can you explain that to me? And they can't explain it to me. They're like, you know, like I go, no, no. And so there was there's uh I, I, I've been exposed to some ideas that really ruin me. I I'm I'm not uh very gullible. And so there's, um, I think most people are, and I actually feel like a little, like, not that, not that there are people that are intentionally trying to trick people or anything like that. But I think that I just notice because that, that was where the show was going. It was a lot of spiritual, more of a spiritual conversation. And when I look at spiritual conversations now, like I like to consider myself a very uh, spiritually practical person and uh like if i can't validate it for myself it's a maybe i'm not gonna i'm not gonna shit on someone's parade but i'm not gonna also go along with it because i don't know but um i think i i bumped up against that pretty early on in the bledsoe show i think i was maybe a year or two in i was like Hmm. Man, this is um this is getting really far out there and I can entertain these things, but I actually don't see this making making any person's life that much better.
0: There was a lot of sophomoric. Yeah. There was a big burst of sophomore energy on the podcast side of things because you could, you could say if we're using the metaphor of school, the seniors weren't hip to the cool things for the younger like how to how to get the information out there so the sophomores had you could say the best way to get the information out there but they didn't necessarily have the most wisdom and experience to offer so their voices were being heard at a higher rate than the upperclassmen but it didn't the assumption is that because we were hearing the voice that they have that level of wisdom and those that was a false equivalency that i made in some places and i i imagine that other people were making as well right oh this person's on a podcast podcasts are still relatively new in tw- you know 2016 as a way to get your message out uh, the idea of being a podcaster just seemed even far out to be a 2016 you know to yeah. oh you're a podcaster like what does that even mean you know and <laughs> and so now there are these people that you're like oh wow uh if this person has a podcast and I'm hearing this person's voice on that's associated with this voice. There was trust that you had accrued through a different channel and medium that you brought with you.
1: Yeah. I I earned a lot of trust. I want to earned, um, I gained a lot of trust from people from barbell shrugged. And then I was able to, there was a point where any guest we brought on automatically had credibility, Right. And then I brought that to the Bledsoe show. And by, by the way, because we mentioned their names, Guy Ferdman, Marcy Locke, stellar. They they are dialed. Their shit is legit. Just putting that out there. Um, but the I I did get a little nervous about that, that transfer of energy.
0: And as I mean, our reputations aren't the only thing that matters and they matter. Matters and that is a
1: fucking well, you know, uh, depending on who you are. Yeah, if if you're running media companies and have a personal
0: brand, <laughs> reputation is is how you eat. Yeah, and so if you're attaching, yeah, again, if you're you're famous in a way for putting people on, you know, uh, I've heard multiple people say um, there was life before and after. Barbell shrugged. You know, it was like there was the life I had my career and I was on my way. Julian Pineau's a good example. Mm-hmm. Mark England's a good example. Mm-hmm. I've now become very close with him. I live in Richmond, Virginia. Now I'm an inner part of the community and uh, we talk on a regular basis. And he has said that I've heard him say it multiple times. It's just there was my life before Barbell Shrugged and then there was my life after Barbell Shrugged. So uh, and the way that y'all had accrued so much loyalty was because you didn't ask for money. All you did was ask for an email. and a a, a nice review and five stars for three years. And then because you had had so many awesome guests and because the information that you're putting out there was working for people, you said, hey, we have this new thing. It's called the Muscle Gain Challenge. Would you like to sign up? And then it was just, I'm imagining that's what you meant. Like the floodgates start opening financially. Yeah, it was actually a year and a half into the show.
1: So we started the show, I think the first show posted the first week of February, 2012. And then August or September of 2013 we launched a six-month muscle gain challenge. We didn't do a big push. We didn't have to. We had been collecting emails. There was a Facebook page back when Facebook pages still got traction, and we had you know, we maxed out our signups in a couple days, hmm. um, and then we opened it up again. It probably wasn't until uh it was probably 2014 when we started even talking about it on the show to in order to promote it cuz we didn't really have to in the beginning. Right. So it, took, it was a couple years there was probably li- people listening for a couple years before we ever made an ask. And it, it I think we did it so well that it really wasn't an ask, the offer was like, "Hey, do you want to come train with us?" It's and pe- no one ever questioned the price. If you look at the price of coaching these days, it was a steal.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, right. What is 150 bucks or something for the muscle gain challenge? I think the bucks. average
1: client was paying 125 dollars a month. Yeah, you know, and they got unlimited video reviews. They were part of a Facebook group. There were there was weekly education. There's you know, yeah, I I know I know online training programs right now that are charging you know, 10k for a year of that.
0: Yeah, which I is was, about
1: ten times you know less was than ten times. Yeah,
0: yeah, and and and. Because you guys did it though, and this, like, because you did it, the value by the time someone like me makes it into the scene that has can provide enough value to say that you have a we have a ten thousand dollar annual offer, y'all had really started to. Uh, normalize those price points because you started out here, you delivered a ton of value, and then y'all started, you know, moving on, moving up. Plus, you were operating at a wider scale. Typically, the 10k offers aren't going to be done thousands of clients at a time. It's going to be a handful at well, a time. We, we kept it time. at
1: 125 the whole time with barbell shrug,
0: unless we were working with gym owners. Mm-hmm. And then if we were selling business products, that was a different story, right? Because it's one thing to provide value where somebody's getting fit; it's another when you're providing value where people are making money off of your knowledge. Oh so
1: yeah, you give me five k, you'll make fifty k.
0: Right. Oh, that's easy. Simple math. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you said something just a second ago, and this is gonna—it's not a—we're not shifting gears necessarily, but I do want to talk about. You said practical spirituality. That was one thing that I felt when I listened to Chris. No, of course, we, we'll, give him some, we'll give the buddies some grace because y'all were in your 30s. <laughs> okay. Y'all were in your 30s, you're discovering things, but Chris seemed to take big, wide concepts and be able to pull them down into earthly metaphors. And so um, what I've found is that you have multiple elements. You have the the fire element, which we could equate to the spirit you have the wind or the air element that you can equate to the mind. You have the water element that we can equate to emotions. And you have the earth element that we can you know, equate to tangible products and information. And so you can become an alchemist, in my metaphor, by taking something out of the air element in your mind and turning it into a physical product. Mm-hmm. And so you guys were very earth in your initial approach because you're talking about fitness and, and outer exterior thing and you started moving into the spirituality side of things. And I imagine because you and Chris were friends, y'all were influencing each other as far as references and things to read. And
1: yeah, there uh, were, uh, Chris and I would, were definitely very airy. We were both very airy. And that's why we were friends, um, by nature. Like, um, I, I would say anyone who's intellectual, that's that's the air element. They're, they live in their head. They're not down in the body. They're not in the emotions. They're not. Their feet aren't necessarily on the ground. Um, you know, being in school, but that's where I met Chris. Was at University of Memphis an Exercise Science program, and we were both very into the theoretical, like how do you get strong as fuck type of thing. So even when it came to strength, it was okay. You know, this type of periodization, conjugate method, using all these really far out ideas. Um so we were we were already intellectualizing physical fitness and then um and then when we I mean honestly it was, yeah it's like when I when I first did mushrooms I go dude you guys got to fucking try these things out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to do this. Yeah. And that that ignited in both Chris and I you know, around the same time, this questioning of, of, of bigger things. We were both in totally wrapped up in fitness and that really opened our minds up to there's way more to this world than just fitness. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, there was, there, there was an exchange of books. There was, and we lived in California, he lived five minutes from me and I would drive over to his house multiple times a week and we would just jam, we would smoke a little weed and we would just jam. And, you know, I was reading some Joe Dispenza and he was reading some Bhagavad Gita and we would be going back and forth. And, um, yeah,
0: bro, there's this thing called the quantum realm. It's crazy. <laughs> if you align your chakras and energies and shit, you just become the thing. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah so we were we 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 were playing around with a, we were getting to like similar conclusions from different perspectives um but we were both again, I think we were both airy in the way and that we like to spend time in our heads mm-hmm. i mean anyone who spends time in their head is gonna be airy by nature and um bring Mark England back into the mix is so so chris first off oh, before I go to mark England chris was so good at taking these ideas and then uh, making it very concise and simplistic. Like if you, when I listened to that show, I heard myself drone on and on and on. And then he said something that got the same point across over in a much shorter period of time. And I go, yeah, that actually both, both work, but his was so much quicker. And he, he had a way with words. And then I meet Mark England, who's, the word guy and Mark England is nothing but practical. There's hardly any air in there at all. Right. And so, um, I think between my relationship with Chris and then my relationship with Mark, I saw that with Chris and myself, there were struggles with getting points across or making the impact. There was, it took a lot it created entire shows, hour-long productions to get a, a point across. And I talked to Mark England. I go, he gets it across in a sentence.
0: He was the first person that I heard refer to language as a technology. Yeah. And in the history of our evolution, it was the technology, outside of maybe some physical tool building, it was the technology that, uh, that allowed humans to separate themselves from the animal kingdom. We're well, able to communicate. It's what creates separation at all. Fucking hell. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, because um words are the only thing that create that uh separates a, that creates a, a difference in time and space.
0: Did you learn that from Mark England? No. No.
1: There's a some old old dude that came through Encinitas, and he had this little hundred page book. He was teaching enlightenment. I stopped in. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: in the last episode that has just released, episode ninety five. It's about the power of writing and it's about language. And so, Chris was made, uh, he was giving mostly like his resolutions. I think the name of the episode was It's Time for a a Resolution. Um, And that could be the next one coming. I've done them both. But the point is either before or soon to be, we're going to have a, a, Chris is going to talk very strongly about the power of writing and it was some practical things, like it increases your chance of remembering things and your, creates accountability for yourself. And oftentimes that that's the friction point of writing things down is if I write it down, then it becomes real. It becomes the earth element. Yeah. And I have to stare at myself in the mirror knowing whether or not I'm actually achieving that thing. Um, so you were going to say something about Mark, but Mark was the first person that introduced language as a tech and I was like, "Did Chris and Mark ever meet? Because based on the what Chris was saying in the episode, it sounded like something that I would have learned from Mark, but I don't think they ever met. I don't think so. Mark's a 2016 episode. I'm pretty sure. I'll yeah. ask him in person. Yeah, I think this... it was January 2016. Yeah. So I maybe. Mean, Fuck, I don't know. Y'all were already swimming in around Y'all must have been swimming around swimming around things that were soon to come and to be like staked in the ground by Mark. But y'all were already seeming to really get some of that. Oh, I was already your- there.
1: That's, that's why I wanted to talk to Mark is because my friend, Daniel Raphael suggested him and who is uh, the world's top wizard. If anyone's wondering. And uh, he, Mark was his mentor and he goes, we got to talk to this guy. And I, I think Mark reached out to him because he was like, I want to get a hold of Mike. Mark was looking for me. And I go, oh, he's a language guy, and I had already, I was already on the language train, but my knowledge about it was still really minimal. You know, uh, at that point, I was playing around with ands instead of buts. You know, oh, and, you know, oh, but negates everything before, if, and that that you know connects things, um, that allows more possibility. The idea of creating possibility through language was already in the a concept that I was playing with. So when I met Mark and he had all these extremely simple and practical ways to go about it, I go, this guy's a genius. This guy, this is so simple. I've been, I've been trying to figure this out for a couple years. And, uh, I mean, I, I didn't dedicate myself to it. I was, I was toying with him in my free time, but this guy, Mark is the type of guy that will find something and obsess over it. And he did. And so, um, Mark Mark inspired me to and and, and Doug as well, Doug Larson, uh, because Doug was always trying to get me to be more practical. Not in those words, but in 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 practice. <laughs> he was like, Yeah, like you're talking about all this stuff, but what are people supposed to do? What are
0: the mechanics? Yeah, what Doug are the mechanics? Was super, super mechanical.
1: Super mechanical. And and that was something I struggled with because in, it was very easy. The way my mind works is I can take this concept and I can easily apply it to my life. I go, oh, I see where this fits in 10 different ways. And I just start doing it. It's almost automatic. It's, it's, uh, and the mistake I've made for years is I thought that other people were the same way. So I go, well, I'll just tell them the idea and then they'll apply it. It'll work. No. That's not how it works. And and Doug actually pulled me aside many times. Like, look, people need to be told, like, step one, step two, step three. I'm like, I don't know the steps. I just did it. I just did it. Like, mm. it's like, oh, do the muscle up. I remember the first time I was teaching people muscle ups. I just, because my first muscle up, I walk over the rings. So I see someone do it. I, I grab it in the rings and I do one. And they go, oh, my God, do you do those all the time? I'm like, oh, it's my first one. And they're like, what the fuck? And then I'm, like, trying to coach it, and I go, you know, just a pull-up into a dip.
0: <laughs> yes, it is. It is just a pull-up into a dip.
1: <laughs> yes. So, so then, you know, and then I studied some gymnastics, and I go, oh, okay, it's not that. That, that transition is actually really hard for people. Okay. And then I learned all these cues. And, like, I've had to learn how to coach from other coaches and, and learning how to break down, and I can break it down now. And so, Doug – would suggest these things and I would resist it. Cause I was like, fuck you. You know what you're talking about? Um,
0: and then <laughs> sounds like a friend to me. <laughs> what are you trying to give me good advice? <laughs> fuck you. Go to hell. Mike in his twenties and
1: early thirties. Uh, <laughs> well, I, uh, yeah. Rebellious by nature. Um, and so I remember, I, I think when I met Mark, it was, I had already been through so much struggle of, of like, hearing that already but then it was i was ready to hear it and and from somebody who was able to demonstrate it right in front of me also right who who i was it's like perfect timing because i was already playing with language i got it conceptually and this guy just breaks it all down and and within the first 30 minutes i got what was going on i go this is this is brilliant so since then i have dedicated myself to making things incredibly practical and making things step-by-step. Um, in the beginning, I won't say it was like, it wasn't one of those things where I did a switch immediately. I'm like, Oh, all my shit became really practical. I look at my, my coaching program with a strong coach. It was more practical, but I've gone back and rewritten it in the last six months, which I'm not even selling it anymore. Mm. Like I basically redid it just in time to not sell it. Mm. To where, like, I've made it to where I tell you exactly what to do for 30 minutes a day for 90 days. Yeah. This is the exact instruction, step one, step two, step three. And this leads to this. And there, there's a diagram that explains where you're going. And it's taking me, I'm 41. I'm now able to explain things in step-by-step fashion. I'm totally happy with it. Like, I prefer it at this point. I actually hear myself talk about concepts for too long and then... I, I get bored with myself.
0: I call that tickling the mental pickle. Yeah. I am yeah. a recovering mental pickle tickler. <laughs> I do. I did. And I, I think that's a, also a sophomore thing. Totally. which is like, oh, I have this new knowledge and you don't. Let me tell you about it. Because one, I, I got excited about it and I want to share that excitement. I, that's really the energy that was coming from. This is exciting to me. I want to share that with others.
1: Well, I think that... Um the getting excited about something and sharing is just something that has been happening my whole life. But also with barbell Shrugged, I started getting rewarded for it. I found out this new thing. Here it is. Oh, thanks for sharing that. I'm like, cool. I'll do that again. I'm a fucking dog, you know, mm-hmm. like easy to train. And, uh, yeah, it's just, um, you know, we all just want to be loved.
0: Amen to that. Well, what, you know, when people, if somebody were to go and look up Mark England right after this conversation, they'll go and find someone who has been working on his craft so long, and in the process, he would call it draft craft supercharge. He's in the supercharge phase with his language. This is a more than 10-year journey for him. By the time you met him, he was in it for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And he had experienced a tremendous amount of the spirituality community abroad in Thailand, in Peru, so Mark, it, it wasn't that he was just against the woo woo. He had been in the woo woo so long and come out the other side, probably with the similar realization, like you know, I've been talking a lot about some shit, but not really seeing the practical results. No results. How 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 yeah. do I even apply what you're saying? Besides needing to go take another dip with some medicines, and you know, Mark has mentioned it himself. I'm not you know won't speak too too much on it, but he's mentioned that his he's had his own psychedelic experiences and journeys with some serious medicines. One that, you know, would, I wouldn't recommend to anybody period, much less, you know, just saying like, uh, yeah, go try this thing. So he came out on the other side with some really practical information. It's been tested. It's been broken, rebroken, made again. And I think that's just mastery in general. We learn things and we test them and we break them and we rebuild them. Yeah. There's, um,
1: I would say Mark was a good, made a good impact there, but there's a book that there's a series of books that Chris Moore and I both read. I know them. Yeah, I won't say them. Yeah, I'll, I'll say them. I actually used to hide them. You did. I did.
0: Yeah, you even yeah. were like, hey, there were some books, but I'm not going to tell you what they are. Yeah. It was fair. I you, think it was. I think it was your junior level. Yeah, your junior year, you're like, I don't know if you're ready for these books, guys. It's true. Yeah, but now you can find them on you, you can know, find them on look, Amazon.
1: There's like eight billion people on this planet. If a couple of them go because they read the book, you know. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could read them and you might end up under a bridge, but essentially the, what I got, one of the things I got out of the book is, uh, validate it for yourself. If you can't validate for yourself, you know, I'm not going to go poo poo someone else's bullshit, but cause they may be right. I don't, I'm not having their experience. Like I'm, I'm totally, totally honoring what other people's experiences and what they think is happening or what their imagination is creating for them or whatever it is, whatever they're buying into or whatever they're actually experiencing. And I just don't have the same experience. I'm all about letting other people have their shit. But if I can't validate it for myself, someone's like, this is what's happening. I go, maybe I don't fucking know. And people are like, Oh, and I'm like, but uh, these people agree. I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't see it myself. I fucking can't. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I'm also not going to get behind it. I'm not going to act like I believe it or anything like that. And so yeah, re- reading Jed McKenna got me more into, um, really needing to just validate. If, if I can't validate it for myself, I'm a maybe, and I'm not going to teach maybes.
0: You've definitely graduated Mike plus. So <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> Chris was in a rebuilding phase of his life with his body. At this time, Mm -hmm. he's losing a lot of weight and he's also shifting his identity around being the big, strong, overbearing power lifter that can squat the house and jump over a table. I'm making an assumption, but one thing that I've noticed or one thing that I that stuck out to me in Chris's journey was the Carl Powley incident yeah. Where you guys were like, yeah, let's get Chris the fuck upside down and see what happens. You know, and Chris was like, "Well, shit, you got a camera on me. I guess we're going to do this thing." But then Carl made it so easy. And all of a sudden he I, I there was a he said, "Holy shit, you're a good coach, dude." That phrase with the level of raised octave in his voice, you could hear like that was a breakthrough moment for Chris. It was like even the identity of being able to be upside down was just shattered. And that started what seemed to be an entire reevaluation of his physical self, what sorts of physical practices were meaningful to him, what he needed to do, what parts of him he needed to keep. As his friend, as his, you know, colleague, what were the things that you noticed in his behavior and what was that transition for him like as an observer in his life? Um It was really, really cool to watch because I, I remember
1: um yeah, just when I met him, he was 360, 370 pounds, putting down uh, to keep the weight up. He would take a Dove chocolate bar and dip it in a jar of peanut butter and eat that as much peanut butter with the Dove chocolate bar before bed. I mean, who knows how many calories is in there. And then for him to start going, Oh, I, I, I'm going to do things differently. It, it was, I remember sitting down having a conversation with him, and he was drug free he was one of the few power lifters in the world that could squat a thousand pounds that were drug free. And I remember sitting down with him once and he's like, he's like, dude, uh, I want to like, I really want to make a run at powerlifting. I want to be one of the best pop lifters. I was like, well, I think you're gonna have to do some drugs. And he goes, well, I, I don't want to do drugs. I'm like, then you should probably not pursue being the best power lifter on the planet because you're not necessarily genetically gifted. I do believe that if you're genetically gifted and have that that type of frame necessary to do that, I think you could do it. But he he had achieved an enormous amount of strength and power in playing football and all that through sheer will. Like he was he was a very big strong guy. I mean, I'm not I'm not knocking him, but like he wasn't it wasn't like he came from a genetic line of people who were incredibly athletic. Right. There's some guys you walk in the gym, and you're like, whether you're on juice or not, you're
0: going to be strong as fuck. I mean, he was, he was by his own self-reflection. He was a fat kid. Totally. That's how he identified as a kid is that I'm just a fat kid. And, you know, I could play football. You put me on the line and I can push people around, but there wasn't much athleticism in its, in its no. foundation. No.
1: And, and so, you know, I had that talk with him and, you know, I don't know how much longer after that, because that I remember that having an impact, but they I told him, I was like, dude, if you want to. it doesn't bother me. Like, if you really want to go that route, no, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I mean, it's a sport where everyone's doing it and no one's testing. Uh, So, but he, he committed not to do that. And then, yeah, just over time, he goes, wow. I, he, there was a point where he goes, oh, I'm not going to be a world record holder. I'm not going to be... I'm not going to win these events. And I'm okay with that. And I think that having... The kids, you know, um, when when his kids arrived, I think especially with May, it really hit him where he's like, oh, shit, like, I need to get healthy. I remember we were living in SoCal, and, yeah, he, he went on major calorie restriction. And uh, yeah, he, he dropped a lot of weight really fast. Um, I was really proud of him. Uh, it, I was so happy he was doing it that that moment that he got upside down with carl powley was like such a it was a beautiful thing to witness uh i know on camera it was cool but in person it was amazing and i was so uh stoked for him and um yeah just uh really interesting to hear that probably at the peak of his health journey is when he passed yeah and it just goes to show that you know, some of that damage gets done, and it's just there's, you know, nothing you can do about it.
0: What does it say about Chris that he, when he went in, he was going to go and and give his full effort, no matter the result? That would seem to be a running theme in his whole show. It's about the effort. It's not about the result. You're entitled to the labor. You're not entitled to the fruits. But what does it say to him that he continued to put in that effort? Year after year, day after day, to evolve, change his character, and to have finished his life believing that he had achieved his dream. The last episode that he created for Barbell uh, Buddha was called "About My Dream Come True." Mm-hmm. And so, what does it say about him that he one went after it, achieved what he believed to be was his dream come true just before this?
1: Um. Yeah, I I had um, you know as sad as. A, the whole situation was, I was really happy that he had, had pursued his dream. I go, look, you know, a lot of people would, would say, you know, what a shame, such a short life, but I, I could look at it knowing him what I knew him better than most people. Probably the next person would be his wife. That'd be the person who knew him best. And, I knew that he in the last few years of his life was doing exactly what he wanted to do. He was living his fullest because he had quit the corporate gig at Smith and nephew working in the, you know, medical industry, um, doing something he was proud of, but wasn't passionate about and going full into his passion of writing and producing shows and working on books and, um, you know, right before he passed, he had moved to Amsterdam because he really loved being there and was very inspired to be there. And even though his life was short, he lived more life than most people who live to eighty, right? Because most people, you know, they just they work the job until they hit retirement, and then they they downsize their lifestyle to meet the pension, and and uh, they just kind of ride it out and never pursue their passion. So there was. It was, a, it was bittersweet in that way. I go, so short, but fuck yeah. I'm so fucking happy that he really went for it in the last few years of his life. And that made that brought me a lot of peace,
0: yeah. knowing that. That yeah. was the lesson from the whole, my own experience, was that I didn't discover the work until after he had died. Mm. And I had seen Travis Mash at the memorial, and Julian Pineau at the memorial, and people that he acknowledged as he revered were present, paying honor, saying, this man changed my life. He changed it with his energy. He changed it with his action. He changed it with the way that he lived and the way that he spoke. That, to me, were the volumes that were the, the nudge to watch and li- or to listen to the show, which was those men up there reflecting on him and i knew as a Barbell shrug fan that he looked up to them so much so for them to say those other things i said you know i'm like what i wonder what is i wonder what his show is about and uh, i've told this journey many times but 100 days later you know i'm having my moment where it's like oh there there is no guarantee that i can do this a decade from now uh, there's no putting, you know, I can't be sure that if I put this off, there's no safe play. Once you understand that, it's there's no safe play. There's no pushing it off There's because you don't know what's going to happen. That was when my action, although very messy most of the time, began, and I've had many moments where I've had such a deep sense of connection to him that it goes beyond rational thought. And maybe it's because I felt connected that the energies that I was bringing was mirroring him in a way that allowed certain things to manifest into my life. But he achieved his dream... And I imagine what he imagined to be his dream when he started Barbell Shrug versus what he said was his dream at the end of the experience were actually very far apart. And I identify with that so much so because of things that will be unveiled on episode 100 of this show. I also get my dream, ladies and gentlemen. Chris had that little nugget waiting for me. And just a little bit. I know the secret. <laughs> he knows the secret. And it's going to wail, motherfuckers. It's going to wail. I promise you'll be excited, but I'll shave it because I got to have something to talk about on the last goddamn show. I could talk about it with Mike all the time. Um, and yeah, that seems to be the biggest lesson that uh, I've taken that I can, whenever anybody asks me, uh, you know, Hey, I'm having a hard time. I'm not really sure what to do next. I don't tell them I have a show. I say, Hey, why don't you listen to this show and just remember that he dies at the end of the story. And people are like, oh, Jesus Brooks. I'm like, yeah, but remember, because that is the lesson. Totally. That, that is the legacy. Uh, he, is living, he was a living, walking testament to the power of saying yes to your life, saying yes to your gifts, finding your edge, sometimes pushing past it. I've heard some really funny stories about him with some edibles that got awry, <laughs> finding the edge, and, and going past it, you know, and... It's always better when you do it with people that you love. And I'm happy to have cultivated a relationship with you as a byproduct of this show. So yeah. thank you for being here. I had a blast. This will be the last official Barbell Buddha rediscovered conversation with Mike Bledsoe. However, there will be many more awesome times with him to come. Any last words, man? This is let's anchor this in. Yeah. Um Preparing for this show and listening to the show I did with Chris
1: really brought up a lot of just... I wanted to to tell myself, I'm in the car driving, and I'm thinking, Mike, just shut up and let Chris talk. (laughs) But I get to go listen to his other shows, and uh, yeah, he he
0: is missed. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, we have gone down the rabbit hole, and uh, I think we came out on the other side. So with that... I'll wrap for the day, and I will see you for episode 97. I'll be back in Fairy Hill, Jamaica. Don't ask me how I did it. See you there.